you know, I was here two, three weeks ago preaching, and it suddenly dawned on me at about half an hour in that I hadn't been preaching to anybody who I could see for so long, because we've just been doing this online all the way through the COVID. And, um, and I could see everyone's faces slightly glazing over, and I thought, oh, it's time to stop now. And um, I thought, I'm not used to that. <laughs> I've just been looking at the screen for so long. So look, I get the privilege of being in the room with you guys. The least you can do is smile and be enthusiastic, okay? And yeah, come on. <laughs> I know we're all, you know, quite English and reserved and stuff, but... You know, uh, We are talking about Jesus' call to community. Um, you might be surprised to know that up to about 100 years ago, almost no one lived alone, lived on their own. Two and 300 years ago, poets used to write about loneliness to describe what happens when you went away from the city to a place like a, like a mountain or a or a forest, somewhere where there was nobody else around. And that was what they described, loneliness, and, and, the, and it was dangerous because you might meet someone who could harm you and there would be nobody else to help you. And that's, why, and that's what loneliness was. It was to be in a place where you might not have anyone else to help you. And it was easily cured, actually, because all you had to do was turn around and go back to the city and you weren't lonely anymore. And yet, over the past 100 years, you know, with transport and technology... Many of us actually go to the wilderness for an adventure, don't we? We go there for pleasure. But isn't it interesting that the fear of loneliness still persists? Because loneliness has moved from being something out there to something in here. And it's actually much harder to cure. Modern loneliness isn't just about being physically removed from other people. It's an emotional state, a feeling, of, a feeling apart from others even though you might be physically surrounded. You might be sitting here with all these people around you and still you feel really lonely. And that's a reality in our Western world. Some say that loneliness is the most common disease in Western society, that it's, has, it's, it's worse than heart disease, it's worse than di diabetes, it has associated health problems. Statistically, it's worse than smoking 15 cigarettes a day. Um, in 2017, the former... American Surgeon General declared an epidemic of loneliness. I'm looking at Steve, he studies epidemics. I don't know, I'll have to talk to you about this later, mate. Um, in 2018, Theresa May, who was the Prime Minister then, appointed a UK government minister for loneliness. And there still is one, still in post. The average person in the UK would say that they have three good friends 45% of us, that's nearly half, find it difficult to maintain long-lasting friendships. And one in 14 of us, that's 7%, say they have no close friends at all. We are indeed living in an epidemic of loneliness. And the truth is that loneliness, well, it has lots of knock-on effects. As well as the health effects, it leads to tribalism. You know, people form, when you're in a tribe, people are basically forming relationships based not on mutual love, but on mutual hate. That's what tribalism is. It's the dark side of community, the dark opposite. If God sets the lonely in families, then individualism sets the lonely in tribes. And all of this truth, you might think, well, that's quite a negative picture you're painting, Nigel. And the answer is, yeah, it is. But it leads us to ask this question. Okay, and the question is this. Is there a practice in the life and teachings of Jesus that has the potential to help us thrive in a rich 
web of relationships in a way that stands in contrast to this culture of individualism, tribalism, and loneliness that we see all around us? And the answer is yes, and the answer is community. I actually want to show you the proper slide. Where's the other slide? I made that one first, right? I was making these slides yesterday, and I made this slide, and I thought, oh, that's beautiful, you know, nice sunset, beach, it all looks beautiful. And then I thought, actually, that's not the real life. This is much more like real life, okay? Because community, you know, there's this kind of romantic ideal that, oh, yeah, we just go hang out and everything's great. Community's messy, you know? Community is being with people. Usually it involves food, Okay, and, and so I just, when I made these, I thought, oh, that's a, that's a better slide to make. It's more close to real life. And what I want to do this morning is I want to walk through some passages in the Bible. So if you have a Bible with you uh, or you have one on your phone, turn up Matthew chapter 4. We are going to go through a few different passages. We're not going in depth on any of them at this point, but I want to jump through a few and we're just trying to spot some patterns in there. We're trying to look at how Jesus did life and what it is that he called his disciples to do. Okay, and the first one, I do have them up here as well, but I'd love you to follow in the Bible if you can. Matthew chapter 4 and verse 18. We're going to race through about five or six different passages here. Um, And this says, as Jesus was walking beside the Sea of Galilee, he saw two brothers, Simon called Peter and his brother Andrew. They were casting a net into the lake, for they were fishermen. Come, follow me, Jesus said, and I will send you out to fish for people. At once, they left their nets and followed him. It's a weird thing to say, isn't it? I'm going to send you to fish for people. I mean, not literally fishing for people. The, the phrase, fishers for people, fishers of people, that was like an idiom back then. It meant, I'm going to make you a great rabbi. I'm going to make you a great teacher. Jesus is basically saying, follow me, and I'm going to turn you into a brilliant, wise sage who can capture the heart of your generation. Jesus was inviting them. And, I mean, any rabbi back then would have a group of disciples who would follow him around. Okay? Mostly the disciples would come to him and they would join his crew and they'd basically have to sit there and basically listen to everything he said and follow him around and, and do life with him for two years. Jesus was, was actually offering more than that because for him, he was like saying, come and follow me and we're going to do this together. He was actually training them. Let's jump on the next bit of this, just following on the next bit. Um, from verse 21, it says, Going on from there, Jesus saw two other brothers, James, the son of Zebedee, and his brother John. They're in a boat with their father Zebedee preparing the nets. Jesus calls them, and immediately they left the boat and their father, and they followed him. You might have read this passage a few times if you've been around the church a long time. I don't know if you noticed this. To follow Jesus is to live in community. Jesus calls disciples plural, not singular. But there is a high cost here. I mean, it's kind of thrown away in one sentence there. Immediately they left their boat and their father and followed him. That's a really big deal. They walked away from their income. They walked away from their family business. They walked from everything and just said, right, we're off. That's a high cost. Turn over to Matthew 8. Here's another passage. When Jesus saw the crowd around him, he gave orders to cross the lake. And then a teacher of the law comes to him and says, Teacher, I will follow you wherever you go. And Jesus says, Foxes have dens and birds have nests, but the Son of Man has no place to lay his head. In other words, he's kind of saying, Do you realize what you're saying? Do you realize what it will cost to follow me? And another disciple said to him, Lord, first let me go and bury my father. But Jesus told him, Follow me and let the dead bury their own dead. 
I mean, it sounds like... <laughs> Don't worry. You're fine. We're not all looking. It's fine. We're fine. We're fine. <laughs> It sounds like Jesus is being incredibly, like, insensitive, right? I mean, it sounds like, but, but that's, not, that's not what's going on here. He's not, this guy hasn't literally just lost his father and he's about to go home and do the funeral. That's not what it means. It's a phrase, it's an expression. Bury, let me bury my father. It's a figure of speech. It basically means, let me go back home and live there for the rest of my father's life, until, waiting until my father dies. Because when my father dies, I will then inherit his resources. If I abandon my family now, this guy is saying, if I follow you now, I'm not going to get the inheritance that's due for me when my father passes away. How am I going to live if I don't have that inheritance? Do you, do you get me? That's what this guy was saying. And so some people were ready to give up everything to be in Jesus' community, like James and John. Others, it was just a too, the, the, the bar of entry was just too high. Couldn't pay the cost. Not everybody was called. Let's look at the next chapter, Matthew 9. Jesus went on from there, and he saw a man named Matthew sitting at tax collector's booth. We were looking at this in our life group this week. Follow me, he says to him. Matthew gets up and follows him. And then Jesus is having dinner at Matthew's house. And it says, while he was doing that, many tax collectors and sinners came and ate with him and his disciples. And going on from there, when the Pharisees saw this, they asked his disciples, why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? This is a major social taboo that Jesus is breaking here. You just don't do that. If you're a rabbi, if you're a teacher, you certainly don't hang out with those kinds of people. So Jesus is breaking all the rules, and he's in there with all the sinners, and he overhears what the Pharisees are saying. And it says, on hearing this, Jesus says, it's not the healthy you need a doctor, it's the sick. Go, go and learn what this means. I desire mercy, not sacrifice. For I've not come to call the righteous, but sinners. He's quoting the scripture back at the teachers of the law, and slightly confrontationally saying, why don't you go and learn what this means? He's kind of quoting it back at them. There were people in Jesus' community from right across the spectrum of religious practice, of Jewish observance. There's a massive diversity in what these, how these guys kept the law. You know, from, from boys like James and John who probably grew up knowing the Torah and knowing the law and would have followed it and in the family that would have been their practice. You've got people like Simon, Peter and Andrew, a bit rough fishermen. And you've got tax collectors like Matthew. Okay, when Jesus calls people to come and be his apprentices, he seems to be more interested in the level of commitment they show to him than in any of their background, training, culture, religious adherence, or even their level of maturity. How many of you have seen that, um, that series, uh, what's it called, the one? Thank you, The Chosen. How many have seen The Chosen? Oh, okay, I won't spoil it for you. There's a great story, but I'm not going to spoil it for you. You should watch it. It's really good. It's got a very unexpected opening. What is it? The Chosen is a book. <laughs> you know what it is. We watched it together. No. <laughs> <laughs> the Chosen is a really great um, online drama series about the life of Jesus. And I, I will tell you, because it really tickled me. It opens on a, on a scene of a guy having a fight in the middle of a ring of people, and he's fighting on the ground, uh, like a, basically like an informal wrestling match. And, um, 
and basically it's going on. And, and meanwhile, his brother over here is kind of, there, there's, there's bets going on on this fight as to who's going to win. And there's a whole bunch of people around. And it turns out these are all fishermen. And it turns out that this guy turns out to be Simon Peter, who then goes on to be one of the most amazing disciples. I just love the way they tell that story. It's fantastic. Anyway, um, one more passage, Matthew 10. Jesus calls his 12 disciples to him, and he gives them the authority to drive out impure spirits and heal every disease and sickness. And here are the names of the 12. Simon called Peter and his brother Andrew. James, son of Zebedee, and his brother John. Philip and Bartholomew. Thomas and Matthew, the tax collector. James, son of Alphaeus and Thaddeus. Simon, the zealot, and Judas Iscariot. <coughs> who betrayed him. Now, this just seems like a list of names to us because we might have read this a few times in the Bible and we associate it with church and and, and God and the Bible. But actually, this is a mishmash of a group of people from right across the spectrum of culture in Israel. And it includes, for example, two people who were literally polar opposites. The last two names, Simon the Zealot, no, not the last two names, my bad, sorry, Simon the Zealot and um, Matthew the tax collector, right? Here they are, Simon and Matthew, okay? Now, I don't know if you know much about these guys, but Simon the Zealot, let's talk about him first. We get the word zeal or zealous from him. Zealot means fanatical and uncompromising in pursuit of his ideals. This was a violent terrorist who was ready to attack any Roman occupying soldier wherever possible for the sake of and in the name of Israel's freedom and independence. You might as well call him Simon the murderer because that's what he would have been. This guy's a terrorist. On the other, and he's all for Israel and he's all against Rome. On the other hand, you've got Matthew, the tax collector, an outcast of Jewish society because he was literally on the payroll of Rome. This guy was working for the Roman authorities, okay, and he was thought of as a traitor. So here's Jesus pulling this gang together, and in his gang, he's got Simon the murderer slash terrorist, and he's got Matthew the tax collector slash traitor. Yes, probably split up because they couldn't put them in the same sentence. I don't know. Yeah, I don't know. I don't know how the guy wrote it. But that's who they are. I mean, how do we feel about getting to know people with radically opposite views to us? You know, I'm just going to be honest with you here, right? We, we are, I sometimes blank people on social media because I find it difficult to read their views. Does anybody else have that, have that experience? Okay, there are, there are people who have a different view to me. And yet what I'm seeing is Jesus pulling people together with extremely opposite views. I mean, how does that make us feel? You know, Remainers versus Leavers, left versus right, liberal versus conservative. Jesus invites them all into his gang, not just to hang out together on a Sunday morning for a couple of hours. Oh, and come to Life Group if you feel like it. For this lot, this is life. This is living, working, traveling, hanging out together every day. Let me read you one more passage. This is from Matthew 20. Then the mother of Zebedee's sons comes to Jesus with her sons, And kneeling down, she says, I want to ask a favor of you. What is it you want, Jesus says. She says, would you grant that one of these two sons of mine may sit at your right and the other at your left in your kingdom? Jesus says, you don't know what you're asking. Can you drink the cup? He turns to the sons. He says, can you drink the cup that I'm going to drink? We can, they answered. 
Jesus said to them, you will indeed drink from my cup, but to sit at my right or left, that's not for me to grant. These places belong for those who've been prepared by my Father. In other words, Jesus is saying, you will drink from my cup. That's a cup of suffering, by the way, not a cup of power. They probably didn't know what he meant. But look what happens next. When the other ten hear about this, they were indignant with the two brothers. Jesus calls them together and says, you know that the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them and their high officials exercise authority over them, not so with you. Instead, whoever wants to become great among you must become your servant, and whoever wants to be the first must be your slave, just as the Son of Man didn't come to be served but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. So there's a conflict. It hasn't taken long for Jesus' band of people who all have these different views and different levels of maturity to find themselves in an argument. Because two of them are going basically, well, maybe it's not them, it's their pushy mum, I don't know. But basically she's gone, I want my two to be in charge when you get to your kingdom. They're going to sit over here and they're going to be more powerful than the rest of you. And, the others are, and Jesus is saying, you don't know what you're talking about. And the others are saying, hang on a minute, why, did you, why should you get to be in charge? We want to be in charge. Why should, you get all the, why should you get all the glory and the fame? So there's a conflict. And Jesus is brilliant, isn't he? Because he takes that conflict and he turns it into a teaching point. He doesn't seem to be afraid of conflict. He doesn't seem, he seems to, it's almost like he expects it. Right? We've got to sort this out, guys. But let me use this opportunity to teach you something about authority and about power. Because Jesus' kind of power is the serving, loving kind of power. And to live in this community is to live under a different rule, the rule of God, a whole different set of dynamics. It's not about power. It's about love, Jesus says. And actually, what ha- one of those boys, those boys were James and John. What happened to them? James, okay, he goes from being the kid whose mum wanted him to be the most powerful among the disciples to the first Christian martyr who died for his faith. That's what happened to James. He made the journey of love and self-sacrifice and service because he was in Jesus' tribe, because he was in Jesus' gang. I just want to make some brief observations from the life and teachings of Jesus. As we've read, I did say I've whizzed through these chapters, but let me make four observations, and they're up here. The first one is Jesus lived in community. The call to follow Jesus was a call to simultaneously join his community. You cannot follow Jesus alone. It's meant to be done with other people. Second thing, loads of people turned that invitation down. It was just too high a price for some people. It was too great a commitment. And bless him, Jesus didn't push it either. He didn't force it on anybody. He just said, this is the call, and if it's too high for you, that's okay. And he let people walk away. He treated them as adults. The third thing, Jesus' community was diverse. His followers came from completely different backgrounds, social backgrounds, political backgrounds, different upbringings, different beliefs, different experiences, different levels of maturity. And consequently, they seemed to be getting into conflict with one another on a matter of regular basis. Learning to get on with one another and deal with conflict well is part of everyday community life with Jesus. I don't know what your family was like dealing with conflict. We, um, we insist 
on, we, we've had a few times in our, in our life where we've insisted our children sit down and deal with the awkward situation that's going on in front of them. And as they got older, my daughter said to me, Dad, you made us do it. It was horrible at the time, but I'm so grateful. Because otherwise we just don't deal with conflict. And yet the truth is, everybody's got conflict. That's, today's not about conflict. That's just a sub-point. Um, the fourth thing is that the end goal of Jesus' community was that his apprentices would grow to be like him. That they were people like him. You see, Jesus was looking to train disciples, disciples who embodied love and service and who were ready to lay down their lives for others. Jesus' community, Jesus' vision of community is so different from what some of us, perhaps even most of us, or most of the people in our world call community. Here's just two mistakes that we make in our world, things that we mistake for community. We think that connectivity is the same as community. We think that because we're connected to so many people that we've got community. Oh, I know so many people, I've got so many connections. How many LinkedIn connections have you got? Or Facebook friends or whatever it is. The truth is, John Mark Comer, by the way, I didn't say this at the beginning, much of this material comes from John Mark Comer. And he said this, online community is an oxymoron. Online community is an oxymoron. I'm so grateful for the technology that helps me keep connected with people. I'm so grateful for the technology that kept us connected together while we couldn't meet like this. Okay? But the more you use digital technology, the more lonely you are likely to be. All the studies say this. It's a really good way to supplement face-to-face relationships, but if we try and replace face-to-face relationships with it, It just won't work. The online connections, we just become even more lonely. We need the face-to-face. It's how we are. It's how we do human and humanizing. It's how we learn empathy. It's how we experience the joy of being heard um, and, and understood. We just can't do it any other way. So in our world, connectivity might be right up here. But the truth is, as I said at the beginning, community is right down and loneliness is 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 everywhere. And so we make this mistake that just because we're connected, we're in community. Another mistake we make is that about chemistry. You know, we get this sort of neurobiological spark when we talk to somebody and we think, oh man, there's something that we've got in common. You know, we, have, we, we, we click with them. Again, John Mark Comer said, the root of all friendship is this phrase, oh, you as well. And we meet people who have a similar interest to us, the same taste as us, the same values as us, uh, the same, you know, they listen to the same music, they like the same films. Um, Some of my best friends are people who live a long way away from me, people who I only see a few times a year, people who I can slip back into conversation with after just six months of being apart, people that I love to be with. Yesterday, a friend of ours was 50, we drove to Birmingham, it took two hours to get there, we stayed for three hours for a party, and then we came back again. And we thought, oh gosh, that was a long day. Why did we do that? We did that because we've got some good friends there. And we wanted to be there on, on our friend's special day. But that's friendship, and that's not quite the same as community. I can't honestly put my hand on my heart and say, I'm in community with my friends in Birmingham, because I don't see them. See, community is something different. In my community are all of you guys. People I see regularly. People, sometimes I see them every week, even though we might not that have that much chemistry between us. We don't have to be best friends to be in community together. It's possible to do community with people that we don't necessarily have that chemistry with. I mean, look at Jesus and those disciples as an example. You know, 
Community is something different. So if it's not chemistry and it's not connectivity, what is it? Well, the Bible's word for community, the Greek word is koinonia, which means fellowship. It's a funny word, isn't it, fellowship? So I, I, I don't like the word because it just feels really Christian and religious to me. But actually what it means is beautiful. Fellowship, partnership, sharing, having stuff in common. You see, community is people with common interests living in a common area. You know, we have community with people that we go cycling with or people that we do fitness with or people that we do the school run with or people that we're in a dad's group with or a dog walking group or whatever it is. We're not best friends. We're not global contacts. They're people who live near us and they're people who we're on the journey with and we have something in common with them. And for those of us who are believers following Jesus, what we have in common is Jesus. It's not about our political persuasion. It's not about our ethnicity or our cultural preference or our education or our background or our tax status or our income. The common denominator here is Jesus. It's a beautiful, simple idea. But it can be really hard work. Somebody called Scott McKnight said, the kingdom of God and the community of Jesus are basically the same thing. It's a place where a group of people who together are aiming to be with Jesus and to be like Jesus and to learn to do the things he did. And you know, of all the practices of Jesus, and we're going to look at all of them, over the next two or three years, we're going to look at all the different practices of Jesus. But there are two that are the most important. And one of them we looked at at the start of the year in our Be Still series, and that's the practice of silence and solitude. And then at the other end of the spectrum, you've got the practice of community. And almost everything else that Jesus did is held in these two containers. And the truth is, generally, our best moments of encounter with Jesus either happen alone in the quiet or when we are fully in community with all of the other apprentices of Jesus. Most of the time when we meet Jesus, it's one or the other. There are best moments. And if you read the Gospels, you know, you read that Jesus moved between both of those states. He was all in with people. And then he was all in on his own in the desert for a bit. Yeah, all in. It's just for you, Chris. I don't know if you remember when Chris preached about all in and he made himself a sweatshirt. And I can't, it said all in. And uh, I can't think of that phrase without that. Jesus was all in with people and then he went to the quiet places and he was all in with his Father God, just him and God, in the silence, in the solitude. But he didn't stay there, crucially. Jesus did not become a hermit and live in the desert for centuries or years and years. You know, he went from there, he knew the importance of that, and then he went right back into community to living with this crazy bunch of diverse, arguing, argumentative fellas and all the others that were there too. Yeah, that's what he was doing. He was doing life. So what about us? Are we the same? I wonder if for many of us, the truth is that we're a bit scared to fully go there, to either end of that spectrum. You know, on the other hand, maybe we're a bit scared to go right into proper silence and solitude. You know, we've sung this morning, haven't we, about the hidden place. In the hidden place, I'm going to meet you, God. But let's be honest, how many of us are nervous of just switching everything off and going to the hidden place? Yeah, thank you for being honest. (laughs) How many of us are nervous about that? 
We don't want to really go there because it, it might be frightening. It might be, we might have to be vulnerable, you know, when we disconnect from people. You know, so we go instead and we sort of do a half-baked version. We go to the coffee shop, we put our ears in, we have some quiet background music playing, and we meet Jesus there instead. Or we keep our phone on just in case, you know, somebody needs to message us or, or something. I mean, I've been there. And it's good. Whatever we do is good, but let's just be honest about that. And on the flip side, I wonder if, at the same time, some of us are scared to go all the way into proper community. Because it takes emotional vulnerability and it takes openness with others. And as you can see from Jesus' example, these are others that may not be like us. These are others that may have different views. And so we perhaps hover in the middle and we hang around with groups of people in what a guy called Scott Peck calls pseudo-community. Maybe we come to church, maybe we even sign up to a life group, and we go along enough times to show willing and to sort of remain connected. But if we're honest, we're just a bit scared to just really unmask properly. I wonder why that is. What, what What is it that's preventing us? What is it that's preventing us from doing that? John Mark Comer talks about three things. I don't have time to go into these. Three suggestions anecdotally of things that will stop us from being real in relationships and community. One is individualism. We live in a culture of hyper-individualism. Life, the universe, and the culture around us are all about our choices and our options. And in that climate, it's really hard to commit to anything, isn't it? I mean, what if I commit to being with some people and then something else better comes along? Because the truth is, it probably will. Something else better probably will come along. But you're committed to this. We're scared of commitment because, you know, I wonder if it's our fear of missing out that makes us afraid to commit to anything. And yet Jesus calls us to submit our individual authority, our individualism, to his higher authority. This is about saying, actually, it's not about me. It's about what Jesus wants for me. Another, another reason that people kind of get a bit scared of community is about this thing, idealism. We have wildly idealistic expectations. We're all going to be together. It's going to be amazing. How many couples do you know that went into marriage like that? (laughs) Just saying. You know? That's how we enter enter these groups. And yet, you know, we find out the reality is very different. There's a quote from a, a wonderful preacher called Dietrich Bonhoeffer. The person who loves their dream of community will destroy the community... But the person who loves those around them will create community. It isn't about going in and saying, oh, it's going to be great. We're all going to be together. And it's going to be awesome. It's about going, how can I love the people around me? That's what community is. Real life. Going in with our eyes open. The third thing that puts us off is intimidation. And I'm not not talking about social anxiety. I'm not talking about, oh, I'm an introvert or an extrovert. I'm talking about being scared of just people and being honest with them because both silence and solitude on the one hand and you know proper full-on real community if they're done properly they will cause us to lay our real selves bare when you're being honest with people there isn't anywhere to hide who we actually are and yet isn't it amazing that we are our best and our worst when we're in community we're safe with the people that we love the most I'm the most, with my family, I'm the most honest, the most unfiltered, 
and I have to apologize the most times because they're the people I'm closest to. And then with my friends, it's kind of the same. And the two most healthy, I'm going to finish, uh, we're going to bring this into land. I'm going to, the, the two most healthy components to a Jesus community are vulnerability and accountability. I love this um, cartoon I found, the unmasquerade ball. <laughs> and there's a, a man called Scott Peck said, there's no vulnerability without risk, and there's no community without vulnerability. And that's challenging. And so we've got these two things. Jesus talks about vulnerability, and he talks about accountability. And vulnerability is challenging because, hey, we might get hurt. And accountability is challenging because, hey, I want my autonomy. I want to do my thing. I don't want anybody else to challenge my authority. And yet the truth is we need both of these things in spades if we want to mature into people of love, into the kind of people that are like Jesus. And, you know, we can be in a place of vulnerability and there's compassion and there's empathy and we get really real. But if there's no actual accountability following up, there's no one else to call us to a higher standard. There's no one else to say, actually, the way of Jesus means that you need to change. How can I help you change? Then we're never going to grow. And on the flip side, you know, if we've got loads of accountability and it's a great place to be open and we're sharing with one another, but actually we're not really telling the truth, we're not really being really honest, we're just kind of being very selective in the things that we share. We're keeping it on the surface. We're not going deep. We don't want to let people know that actually there's a lot of pain in there. The center point for Jesus' community is not the stage or the pulpit or the building, it's the bread and the wine. This is where we confess our sins. This is where we say we messed up. This is where we get accountable. We celebrate communion regularly here because it's a covenant meal. We're going to do it next week. It's a way to bring our sin to Jesus and to recommit to this covenant. The New Testament writers assume that we are living in community. There's this phrase, one another. The New Testament writers, in the New Testament, the phrase one another comes 59 times. It says, be at peace with one another. Wash one another's feet. Love one another. As Jesus and his disciples and the apostles taught us how to live, they assumed that we were living in a life where we were with one another. And they assumed that it's messy. They assume that there are people around us that we have to choose to accept and honor, even though we don't feel like it and don't really want to. They assume that there are people that we have to bear with, that we have to instruct, that we have to confess to. And they also assume that real community is a place where we're learning to love, where we're learning to be vulnerable, where we're opening up, and where we're making ourselves not the center of our world, but we're becoming accountable to others and saying, help me change, help me grow. As scary as it might feel, community is Jesus' school of love. This is where real spiritual formation happens. <laughs> there was a book called The Boys in the Boat, and it's about the 1936 American Olympic rowing team who won gold in the Berlin Olympics. And it says that they rowed for over 4,000 miles in training for a total of 28 miles of competition. They were very successful in the competitions, but in their words, everything was a mess in practice. You see, our family 
our community, that's a training ground for how we learn to love and how we learn to grow. And so we're going to explore this idea of community over the next few weeks. And it's called a practice because it's something we need to practice. We don't, I don't know about you, but I don't have all this sewn up yet. I'm not, I'm not quite there. <laughs> I'm not hard, sometimes I think I'm hardly there at all. Growing in the practice of community, it's easier, by the way, to start with people you don't know than it is to start with people you do know. Just a little hint there. Because our closest relationships are the ones where we get it wrong. We get called out. If you're not regularly in community, then you're missing out on the chance to grow into someone who's more loving, more kind, more honest, more real, someone who deals with their stuff, who looks out for others, and who's more like Jesus in every way. So if you're part of this church, I would strongly encourage you, for example, to join a life group. It's a great place to make a start on this stuff. Life group's brilliant. You're not too late. We're just, all the life groups have just kind of kicked off. Some of them have been going a week or two. If you haven't got into a life group yet, I would strongly encourage you to do that. If you can't make that work for any reason, then form your own group. Invite somebody over for a meal and then have an intentional conversation and then do it again two weeks later or a week later. It's so important that we do this journey with others. If you need you know, some material to work through, let us know. And we'll send you a few questions you can be working through as you chat so you can have an intentional conversation. I'd love us to stand and love us to pray because I think God has got some things that he wants to do this morning. So why don't we stand together? If we are choosing...